Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. I am so excited about this episode that I have in store for everyone today. So today on the show, once again, we have Susanna Barkataki. You might remember her a while back. We did a deep dive on cultural appropriation and yoga. And this was a while ago. We've come a really long way in this community and in this conversation. So I'm really happy to have her back on the show to go deeper. Susanna is the founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute. She's a certified yoga therapist and she has an honors degree in philosophy and a master's in education. Today on the show, we navigate the complicated, challenging, and immensely valuable conversation of cultural appropriation of diversity and equity in the yoga world. If you are a white person listening to this show, chances are you are practicing yoga, you're a student of yoga, maybe even a teacher of yoga. And if you are white, and this is something that is a part of your day-to-day life, something that has enriched your life deeply, it is so important that you step into this conversation and that you begin to evaluate these important areas and really investigate inside of yourself. Am I honoring the roots and the culture of this practice? And if I'm unsure, how can I go about exploring that? So in this episode, we dive into, among many things, the big question of should we really be saying namaste at the end of yoga class? We also get into is yoga political and how we can use yoga to actually make a change, not just within each of us, but in the world as a whole. As an added extra, it's just a little mini surprise. There's going to be a bonus episode with Susanna released on Monday. So stay tuned for that. So without further ado, let's dive in. So, so good to see you again. How are you doing right now? Speaking from the heart, what's going on? 
From the heart, I am really excited. I'm about to be launching a book, and it's also a holiday time and new year for Hindu folks, for many, many Indian folks all around the world, Diwali, which is a celebration of good triumphing over evil and truth and knowledge and light coming into the world, which is a really needed and really timely celebration right now. Very, very timely celebration right now. I really feel so much is shifting in the world. I mean, I I think the whole year we've all felt that feeling of things coming from beneath the surface to move and change. But how are you feeling right now in terms of hope Mm -hmm. and the future? Where are you at today? I'm really hopeful. I am. I'm really inspired. I mean, we've had some shifts in the world in my local world and also the United States politics where I live. And we have for the first time ever a woman, a woman of color, a black woman, an Indian woman who's a a child of immigrants in one of the highest offices of our country. And so this is something that I think it, for me as, as someone who's an immigrant and as a woman of color and then raising a child who's mixed, it's like, wow, there's so much more that's possible that every young person can can look at this and be like, if there's something I want and I focus on it, I can get there. Hmm. Yeah. I am really uh, excited to have this conversation now. I feel like mm-hmm. with the election, there's definitely a revival again of, of the conversation around race, around inclusion, around culture. We mm-hmm. saw earlier in the year with Black Lives Matter around May and June there this big peak, almost like a wave of education and learning and challenge and so much, so many things shifting for so many people. And then I, I think everyone kind of experienced this drop in in a little bit. I don't know if that's a natural thing. It's hard to maintain that level of intensity Mm. for a long time, but it's also probably a lot of people moving on and not having those conversations again. And now with Trump moving out of office slowly, nudged <laughs> out of there. I really think this this conversation is starting back up as it should. So how does it feel, I guess, to fr- from your perspective, living in the United States as a, as a South Asian, as an Indian woman, with a female woman of color as the new VP? Where, what is that like for you? Mm. It's exciting. It's inspiring. It's complex. You know, there's things about Kamala Harris that as a former police officer, you know, that I don't, I, there's, there's so many layers to it. And yet there's a moment of, for me, of celebration of, of thank goodness, you know, we have a administration that will hopefully be attuned to the environment, attuned to the needs of the unheard, attuned to just issues that like like science and health for and well-being for everyone that feels really more supportive. It's kind of like we can take a collective exhale a little bit. And at the same time, I'm really aware that there are a lot of people, millions and millions and millions of people who might not be feeling this way. And so at the same moment that I'm celebrating and feeling joy, I'm also aware that those people too are Americans and and beyond that are humans who, like me, want to be happy, like me, want to feel cared for, want to feel like there's possibility for them and hope for them. And so I am thinking about, well, 
if the truth of my practice of yoga is unity, how do we move forward as a nation and really as a world towards more unity and not have this administration and this quote unquote, even when we call it a win, it's like, well, when there's a winner, there has to be a loser. And ideally, I would hope that ultimately there are no losers and that we can all come to, to be on a side of shared humanity. Whether we will get there under this administration, I don't know. But for me, that those things are all what I'm thinking. So I'm celebrating, but I'm also like, well, how do we keep doing the work? And not so much the work of like fighting or ending or stopping, but more the work of uniting and what, what might that look like. And it's not a small task right now, <laughs> not just in the U.S., but across the world, definitely. So what I am really interested in and what I really want to talk about today is how this all relates to yoga. And I think it's one of those things, it's definitely one of the most common comments I get whenever I approach the topic of race uh, on social media or in any channel is, go back to yoga, you know, mm -hmm. wh why do you have to talk about politics? Just do what you do. Stay in your lane. Is yoga political? Yeah. Well, yoga is about personal and social uplift. It always has been. It's a codified, organized system of liberation. And that liberation can be personal. But the first tenet of yoga, the ethics of yoga, so the yamas, is ahimsa, ahimsa, not harm. And built into not harming is, of course, not harming ourselves, caring for ourselves and loving ourselves, but also causing and creating the conditions for other people to be able to experience yoga. And in order to create the conditions for others to experience yoga, that involves things like rights and justice and ethics and care and so yoga inherently is political, but it depends on how you define the word political. If we're talking about the politic, right, like the politic is just a group of people who are looking for how to govern and how to bring sovereignty to themselves. And so then absolutely yoga is political because it's about sovereignty, about self-awareness, self-control and making sure that others have the right and the ability to have that control of themselves rather than be, you know, suffering at, at different causes like poverty or, you know, ill health, those kinds of things. So, yes. And, and yet, though yoga is political, yoga isn't necessarily, I think, stuck in um, partisan politics. And people confuse those two things. So that's important to say as well, because it's ultimately concerned with liberation of the individual and of the group and of all of us, all beings. And there are going to be different views of how to get there. And yoga can hold all of those views and also work or support all of those different views. So yoga can actually be or, or should maybe perhaps actually be a really important tool for anyone who's mm -hmm. practicing now, but maybe missing this piece do you feel like there's a that there's a disconnect in maybe in the US and the West or among among the yoga community or the yoga world right now in terms of what yoga actually is? Yes, I think we can really water down what yoga is when we focus on just asana, just the physical practice. Like if I come to my mat and I'm just 
you know, wanting to like pull a handstand or get into scorpion or get tighter, you know, abs or whatever. All of those things are great and they're wonderful focuses for practice, but they're not all that there is. And when we just reduce yoga to the physical, we miss its potential for personal freedom and social freedom. And so let me be really specific here, right? Like in the history of yoga, we have record of it being used to create liberation. So in India, when India was controlled by the British government, during that time, there were yogis all over the subcontinent who turned into their practice, including Gandhi, you know, Mohandas Gandhi, who is a complex figure, but also is part of the movement to liberate India from colonial rule. And he was practicing yoga alongside these other yogis saying, we're never going to be free of this oppression if we're not free inside. And so the way we become free inside is by finding Swaraj, Swa, Self, Raj, Rule. It might sound familiar to some yoga practitioners who think about Svadhyaya, which is self-study. And self-study is one step on the path to Swaraj to self-rule. And so yoga was used as an actual tool, a practice for freeing India from British rule and, and nonviolently without causing harm intentionally to the British rulers. It, it's a powerful way of creating social change and personal change that preserves the dignity of all sides. And that's also, I think, part of why yoga is, can be and is so helpful today is there is no wrong or right. You know, there's no ultimate, like, these people are bad, these people are good. But yoga recognizes that there's complexity. And what we need is to find a kind of way that all of the truths and all of the experiences can be held without making anyone less than anyone else. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. Osea's skin and body care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with our signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. So applying this, for instance, now, because it's, I think for, for a lot of people in today's world, it's easy to look back at 
oppression that happened back then mm. or slavery that took place in the United States back then, mm. you know, but it's, it's over now. Right. So like, right. you know, everyone technically has the same rights. And I'm saying that with some, some air quotes, like everyone is one and we all have, there's this idea that all of those things, they're not current anymore. When truth is that a lot of this oppression in different ways still takes place in subtle and big overt ways today. So can people use the practice of yoga mm -hmm. to, to find that inner liberation or healing, even when the system is still very unjust? You know, I have to believe so. And, and look, like for folks listening, we all come to this from different perspectives and, and experiences. And mine is one where that colonization of India by the British is very recent. My father was born two years after The, the British left after India was free. And so really that makes me the first or second full generation of personhood who is free of, of colonial rule, right? And we know that it takes generations, sometimes even seven generations to remove that kind of experience of oppression from within our, our cells and our experience. And so we're not even close. My son, my child is only third removed from this. And so it is very personal and I see the impacts, for example, on my family members who, when I ask them, you know, what can you tell me about the rich culture and history of India? They say, oh no, we can't, we can't tell you anything about that. We didn't learn it. We learned about British history. And I know this about this general and this about this time in, in the British empire. And, and so when we, take a moment and pause and think, wow, like there's a whole, there are whole groups of people who've lost their history, who've lost their understanding of their own culture that has impacts right now. And, and there's a way that it can feel kind of like, well, what do I do about that? And I want to make sure for people listening, you know, I'm also British, right? I'm mixed. So I have both, both parts of myself in me and I'm aware and can, can, empathize with the side that's like, oh no, I feel so terrible. I can't believe my ancestors did that. It wasn't me though. You know, that feeling of like, that was horrible, but it wasn't me. And that's true. But the depth of it is also that these, these circumstances that disempower one group for the quote unquote benefit, not real benefit of others, harm everyone. And when we see that harm without getting stuck in guilt, we can say, oh, okay, well, what can I do now to help make this better? What can I do now to help move in the direction of uplift, move in the direction of learning more, doing better, creating more right, more freedom, more good in the world around me? And I think, you know, as a group, we yoga teachers, like we're really well-intentioned people in general. I think we really want to learn. We, we really care. And we have been moved by our practice often. And we're often moved to share it and to share that joy and that freedom with others. And so that too gives me a lot of hope from all of the different positionalities that we're in, that we as, as a collective can definitely use our practice to do better and to And to not stop, you know, when, when you hear something like this, a podcast like this, even if you're like, oh, wow, that, 
totally doesn't apply to me. I don't even know what she's saying. That's just a really extreme view. It's like, okay, pause and think, well, if there's a whole group of people, because I can say my voice stands in for, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of people who have felt disenfranchised or not seen or not represented in the yoga world in the West, then maybe it's a time to pause and be like, well, wow, what would this mean for me if this were true? What, What might I need to shift or what might I need to learn or what might I need to change? And could that help me grow? Could that help other people grow? And I found that when when I do that, you know, when I listen to someone who's trying to tell me, like, you're missing it, Susanna, you missed this whole other piece, this whole other worldview, this whole other experience. It's in those moments where I can open my heart a little bit and use my practice to just be a, a bit soft hearted, not take it so much as an attack, but as an opportunity for connection. And so that's my invitation for people listening is to like, wow, what might this mean if this were true? And what what could I do differently? Hmm. And I, I think something that immediately just strikes me is how, first of all, when, when you take a, a standard 200-hour yoga teacher training, which so, so many people are doing and so many people have, the fact that this part of, of Indian history generally mm-hmm. isn't a part You know, oftentimes when it's like, oh, here's the history of yoga, we learn about some grandfathers of yoga, and then it magically came to the United States, and it changed the world, and here we are now. Right. What is harmful about that? Because I know there might be people out there who who don't really, or maybe who haven't been in the conversation in terms of the end of this actually causes people harm today. You know, what's the harm if I don't know everything? I can learn later. Is there Mm -hmm. harm in that disconnect? Yes, I, I think there is. And in a moment, I want to ask you your experience, because I know for you, like the awakening to these understandings has been a process. And I think that's also so helpful for folks to hear like how that journey happens from a different perspective. Because for mine, it was like, I always felt on the outside and always felt like there was like, even though yoga was something my family did, and is really my Indian family that I've grown up with, I didn't feel seen or represented. And so one, there's harm in that, right? When the very people and that the practice comes from for thousands of years that have been, you know, codified, organized, practiced, taught from teacher to student for thousands of years, when those people are erased or left out of the very site of their indigenous wisdom, one, it's it's cultural appropriation, but it's also continuing empire colonization and and really like a racist regime of of control of the spiritual wealth and knowledge. So I say all these big words, but it's also just like it's sad because we're missing the depth of what that practice is and can be for everyone. And and then also there's the thing that's left out in yoga teacher trainings, if they, and I see this again and again, you're so right. They jump over colonization, right? They skip over. It's like, oh, yoga was practiced in early India in the, in the Indus Valley. And then, you know, it came to the United States and it was mixed with gymnastics. And now here we are. And there's this whole kind of, there are different sections of yoga history that are actually really 
interesting to learn about. And there have always been different schools and different branches of yoga that translate and practice in, in unique ways. And yet colonization had a huge impact on how yoga came to the United States. And to miss teaching about that also misses teaching about its possibility and potential and success liberating many, many people. And that's important too. It's like, well, let's learn about how yoga has impacted the world. And yoga has created a movement for freedom. It's kind of like in the civil rights movement where Martin Luther King was influenced, you know, in, in his nonviolent methods for social change and civil disobedience and Thoreau as well in the U.S. was influenced, they were influenced by the Bhagavad Gita, by Gandhi and his teachings. And so there's a, a kind of world conversation around human rights, equal rights, movements for freedom and peace and justice inside and out that gets missed. And that's so critical because for someone learning yoga, they might be in a situation, right? Like change happens on a local level. And if they're in a community, like many folks listening, there may be things around you, like it might be animal rights, or it might be rights of children, or it might be issues connected to parenting and and mothering or domestic issues, right? That you're like, oh, this is something I can, I care about and I want to make change with, but I don't know how. And if you're able to see the ways that yoga has been used to help shape and change social issues for the better, it gives us more tools, really important and powerful tools to create uplift where, right where we are. And I think it's 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 pretty amazing just looking at it from that point of view. I mean, I feel the way yoga was shared to me from the beginning and was for many, many years was from that perspective of yoga has changed my life, whether it was my teacher's life or fellow students or, you know, here is how yoga helped me. It helped heal my body. It helped heal ailments or pain, helped me access my breath, maybe helped me heal trauma. There's so many layers to how yoga can help, but it's always been from that point of view of me and mm -hmm. mine you know and that's also how I started teaching was yoga really changed my life you know and yoga could change your life come and practice and it's much more interesting and fascinating to approach it from yoga changes our lives mm -hmm. yoga has changed our world I mean the the power behind that and then how easy it is to bridge that of course yoga is political Of course, we can apply this to all of these huge life questions because it's part of the very philosophy of what we're practicing every day. But instead, because there is that gap of yoga, it's me and mine and my journey mm. and my teacher said and versus us and our, I think it's just that it requires a brand new perspective for a lot of people that have been practicing in a different way, like I did for many, many, many years. Yes. Yes. And I think also there's like a tenderness in that perspective because just because, you know, you or I have experienced immense benefit from something doesn't make it ours to do whatever we want with it. There's a accountability and a responsibility to the practice itself, to our teachers, to the lineage of, of a practice. And that that part can feel sometimes, I think, for folks, maybe for people listening, like we're trying to take something away. But actually, it's not taking something away. It's just deepening 
in relationship to yoga or to that thing in a way that it is more inclusive and brings in more people, maybe more understanding and and widens one's view rather than kind of closes it closes it down. Yeah. So instead of it being a loss, you know, this this feeling yeah. of someone is trying to take my practice away or my tools. And of course, I, I can, you know, understand the defensiveness, defensiveness around that, which I experienced yeah. definitely as part of my, my awakening also. So, so let's talk about cultural appropriation. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, I think a word or words that are concept that people have heard so much about what is cultural appropriation and how does it relate to yoga? Yes. So cultural appropriation has, and this is from the Oxford English Dictionary, its definition is when a dominant group takes a something from, you know, the material, financial, cultural, natural resources, takes something from a less dominant culture that is not their own and causes harm to the source culture. And so this is tricky and and important, but the key word is the dominant culture, because what it points to is power. And folks who are listening, you can't see, but I'm putting one hand above another hand, right? Like in, in the world, there are societies and civilizations that have had and currently have power over other groups, societies, civilizations. And so when that dominant group, which already is in a position of power, takes something from a target group or a subordinate group, then that is cultural appropriation. The reason that the power imbalance is important, and this is why, you know, it's tricky, you know, because I think sometimes people are like, but it's just fashion or, you know, it's, it's just an outfit or a hairstyle. So why are people getting so upset? And the reason people get so upset about cultural appropriation is it points to that power imbalance and lays it out really bare for everyone to see. And I'll give you a, a really a couple concrete examples. One is that dominant culture group doesn't experience the same like oppressions or disprivileges that someone from the subordinate culture experiences for doing the very same thing. In fact, they may be celebrated as avant-garde, as hip, as cool, whereas the person from the culture is put down or excluded. And I'll give you an example of a bindi, which is like a marking a dot at the center of the forehead near the third eye that can be used as a decoration by Indian, by South Asian women usually, or femme folks. It also can be given to men or women or anyone of any gender that during a puja or a spiritual Um, process or ceremony as a marking, like a a blessing. It's basically like a blessing. And so for me and many of my friends who, but I can recall one time when I was leaving a puja, I had uh, a bindi, in this case, a talak, which was just like a mark of vermilion on my forehead, like red, bright red color. And I was leaving the temple and I was walking down the street with my family. And there were some other kids you know, non-Indian kids who came by and pointed at me and our family and laughed and was like, dot head, dot head, go home. And it was so painful, you know, to experience that. It was confusing. I was young. I didn't really know what was quite what was happening, but I knew I was being made fun of for something about who I was. And 
you know, fast forward to now, like decades later, and one of my colleagues, their friend, their child just got called dothead in school. And so it's not over. That's the thing, right? These things don't go away because they're actually part of that that imbalance of power. And so then you've got, and, and again, many people have done this, right, without meaning to cause harm. So I'm not putting down someone who's not Indian, who's worn a bindi or saying, oh, that's so messed up. But it's just consideration of, well, if someone who's non-Indian wears a bindi and, you know, then everyone's like, oh, that's so cool. That's so hip. Where'd you get that? What's that about? And they get all of this um, celebration, but without understanding that that same thing for someone from within the culture can mean, um, it can even mean violence towards them, right? And, and can cause. So, so that is one example of cultural appropriation. Now, this is why cultural appropriation is complicated, is there's no real rule book, meaning for people listening, you can't just take like what me, Susanna, you know, one South Asian person says and be like, I'm not going to do this because Susanna said so, or I am going to do this because my Indian friend said it's okay. There's nuance because power and positionality are always changing. And so just to complexify it a little bit, when one of my best friends had her wedding, she wanted everyone to wear Indian clothing, including Westerners, you know, and, and white folks. And so everyone wore saris or or different, you know, traditional Indian clothing, salwar kameezas. And some people wore bindis to her wedding because she asked them to. And in that context, that's not you know, she's like, this is not appropriation. I'm being really clear because it's just for my wedding and I'm asking you to do this and I want you to do this here. But she made it really clear, don't go out and do this, you know, with in, in another context. And so often I think it can feel confusing for people, like what's okay to do, what's not okay to do. And because cultural appropriation involves two things, power and balance and harm, here's the the like key for folks listening to try to figure out for yourself, well, what's okay, what's not okay. One, are you in a position of power? And if so, great, learn a little more, right? So how can you learn more about these other practices and these other cultures that you might be engaging with so you can use that power to uplift rather than accidentally offend? Because the second part of cultural appropriation is harm. And that harm can be disrespect, you know, like when we see, oh my goodness, as I was researching for this conversation, I was Googling and there's like namaste everywhere. For example, a sacred word that that means hello um, or welcome or, and namaste is on socks, it's on cups, it's on toilet seats, like it's everywhere. And it's so not something that someone from within the culture would do, right? So learning that if if you're taking a practice, a word, decoration, a cost, not, it's not costume, but like a clothing, an article of clothing, to understand whether or not you're causing harm of disrespect or material harm, like really, really impacting the groups from which the, the thing came. And an, an example of someone being in power in this specific case would be someone who is white, for, for yes. as an example. 
Yes. Yeah. Because in, you know, the West, the Western culture, our normative dominant culture is, is a white power structure. And, you know, that isn't saying that every white person is bad. That's not saying that um, white people have, as individuals have done anything wrong. It's a system that is in place that privileges some at the expense of others. And so those who are centered, like if we just Google, if you Google yoga, if you Google yoga asana or yoga poses, you'll see, like just scroll and you'll see tons of white people, white, thin, able-bodied, usually women. And so that is a cause of white supremacy or white centering in yoga, which isn't like white supremacists. That's different. It's not, it's not saying, you know, white people are better than others intentionally, but it's saying this is what's the norm and anyone else is outside that norm. And that that's important wherever one is, you know, in terms of relationship to this kind of power structure to be like, oh, I'm in a position of privilege here in a position of power here. If, if you are, if you're listening, right, then what can I do to help make this more inclusive? And I just want to pause there for a moment because I've really been reflecting on privilege and power and, and all the privileges that I have, right? So even in the places where, like, if we just take a moment and look around and think, wow, I have air, clean air, if you do fresh water, if you do an environment to be in, a way to listen to this conversation, like there are so many privileges that I have that actually vastly outweigh, in my case, my disadvantages, which are there too, you know, but so all the places where I have privilege, those are things to be grateful for, and I'm really grateful for them. And there are opportunities to say, oh, well, this person doesn't have this privilege. So how might I use my my advantage, my privilege here, not feel bad about it, not get stuck in guilt? Because that's just like, it's wonderful that I have that privilege. Other people should have it too. So how can I use it to uplift others? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So privileged, and it's such, I think because it's such a charged term now, it might sound like a very negative thing, you know, white privilege and white, you know, it's so bad, but privilege is something we all should have. It's just a negative when there is that power imbalance and when certain people are, continue to lack. So to, to, to bring this, you know, make it a little more clear, or I think for people who are listening right now, who are either yoga teachers or yoga practitioners really wondering because that was one of the most asked questions I got for this conversation was, I am worried I am not practicing in a respectful way. How can mm-hmm. I make sure that I'm practicing and teaching in a way? Because it is true what you say, I mean, right before this conversation, saying that yoga teachers generally are w- very well intended. Yoga mm-hmm. practitioners also, I think there's very few people out there who intend to try to cause harm in the context of yoga. It's more about awareness and, and, and education, I think, more than anything else. 
So how can we continue or I guess ensure that we that we carry on the tradition of the practice in the most respectful way possible? Yes. Well, absolutely keep, you know, it's a beautiful answer because the answer to to how can we, you know, honor and respect the practice is to go deep into it. And so by being even more devoted to yoga, by asking yourself, like, how how can I be in relationship with yoga more fully? How am I moved to relate to yoga more deeply today? And then continue asking yourself that. Like, maybe it's going into the ethical practices, the yamas and yamas. Maybe it's deepening in asana. Maybe it's focusing on breath work, pranayama. Maybe it's mindfulness. And, you know, one thing I love to do, being a parent, those who are parents might be able to relate to this one, but I used to be able to get up and do yoga asana and meditate, do dharana for and dhyana meditation for like like two hours every morning. And now there's no way, you know, if I go down somehow my kiddo knows and like comes, it's like, mom, I want to meditate with you and is sitting in my lap, right? And moving and wiggling. So it's, it's my practice has changed. And now I practice mindfulness with my child who I'm home with, you know, all day long, all night long now because of quarantine and COVID. And, and so really like parenting has become my yoga, being with another for whom I love and who needs me and has so much love for me. That has become so much of my practice. 20 you know, well, not 20, but like my waking hours, so 16, 18 hours a day, that's the yoga now. And so deepening in these ways and really being a devoted student always, even if when and if and when we're teachers, for those who are, always coming back to, I am a student of this. I am a student of this. What more can I learn? Where can I learn more? And expanding into those different aspects of practice that call you. And remaining open, I think, to to the, the yoga kind of, this sounds funny, but like guiding you or, or doing you as opposed to, there's like a, a way of surrendering to the relationship with yoga that for me is a lot about embracing the roots of yoga is like, well, what does it mean to be, to embody, to practice yoga fully right now in this moment and to always come back to that day after day after day. So it's a beautiful process. It's That's what's so lovely about this, I think, is it's actually not asking people to do anything. I mean, it might be a little uncomfortable in the way that sometimes holding like Virabhadrasana 3, like Warrior 3 can be uncomfortable or holding a, any kind of strong pose can be uncomfortable. But like holding the tension of, wow, there's something not quite right. Like, how can I sit with this? How can I breathe with this? So I can get to that next, the, the new side, the like, relaxation in this super difficult pose in my body or relaxation in, wow, this is a tough conversation to be having with my studio or with my friend around why Black Lives Matter or why it's important to center South Asian voices and Indian and Desi voices in yoga. I'm going to breathe and I'm going to give myself compassion and give them compassion and and see where it goes, see what happens when we move through it. Hmm. So it's not actually something that that is separate from the yoga we're already practicing. It's part of the yoga we're all. It is the yoga, you know, it and is. it's the 
that unveiling, that next layer, which makes this much more exciting. And, you know, you're able to approach it in a way of, wow, how can I deepen into this learning? And maybe also realize that when I get really deeply triggered of, you know, that feeling of, oh, you know, there's a, there's an Indian woman out there telling me I'm culturally appropriating. I cannot believe it, you know, and then going down that road of, of, of going with the trigger versus what we learn in the practice, which is exactly that. Oh, I'm, I'm experiencing discomfort here. Mm-hmm. But that's the, the juice of the practice. It's never the easy parts. You know, if you're talking asana, particularly the, the pose that that's effortless and always was, not really, you know, it is the challenge, the tension and holding that discomfort, which is easier to do in Virabhadrasana 3 than it is in conversations around race. I mean, I'm <laughs> going to go ahead and generalize and say somehow. But so let's talk a little bit about language. And mm. this is something that I, and I've been really contemplating this uh, in a big, big way and also kind of trying to remember and look at the different teachers I've had in my life and the particular trainings that I've, I've, I've been through in my life and where education around language was really lacking and, 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 and where I felt a little bit conflicted. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, I, I speak four languages. Language always came so easy to me. I studied Swedish, English, Spanish, French, and Russian all mm. throughout my my uh, my high school years. And now mm. I, I speak Papiamento, which is the, the, the native language of Aruba here. So language is one of those things where it's just, I, if I had a superpower, I would choose to speak and understand every language of the world. Like there's something yes. so fascinating about that to me, to really understand people. There's some, mm-hmm. there's history mm-hmm. and richness to language. Mm-hmm. Yet when I started studying to become a yoga teacher, Sanskrit was was one of those things where I felt like it was more important that I was fitting in to the context of each studio where I taught or each community where I landed or where I lived in terms of what other people were saying versus here is what's true or here is mm-hmm. is the true origin or the true pronunciation of this word word. And a good example of that is being Swedish, you know, if I were to kind of have my original Swedish heart, the way I would approach namaste, or I want to talk about that, how to to, to properly pronunciation of that. I would say in the beginning of my years of teaching, I said namaste or namaste. That was, that was it. Namaste, namaste. That was how I would end, end class. And then I moved over to the U.S. and had a more U.S.-based uh, students and then and teachers who would say namaste, namaste, which sounds like stay, stay put. And I even had, had a teacher tell me that that relates, you know, think namaste, you're staying in the moment. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. And then I had another teacher pronouncing it differently. And all the while I was flowing between whatever that person was telling me then. And then of course, most of them, majority, almost every single one was a white person. But still with this sort of interest in language that I had, it never really occurred to me to go deep enough into the Mm -hmm. roots of the language. It was more important for me to fit in into the studio Mm -hmm. and feel like I was saying it the way they said for me to do it. So can we talk a little bit about this? Because this I know is a big topic for many, many people, especially teachers listening. Yes, I'd love to talk about this. And, you know, one of my motivations for teaching yoga teacher trainings 
was besides being asked to teach by my my friends and my teacher telling me to teach was I wanted to preserve the language that yoga is given to us in. I wanted to, because all around me in LA also, people were not learning, you know, people were graduating from 200 hours, 300 hours, and they didn't know the Sanskrit names of poses. And that for me is a huge issue when we're looking at preservation of a culture and preservation of a tradition. It needs to happen, I believe very strongly, in the language that the practice comes from. Now, that doesn't mean that someone has to have perfect pronunciation. I don't. I did not grow up speaking a um, Devanagari-based language. So Sanskrit comes from Devanagari, Hindi also. My family is Assamese. It's, it's different. Sounds are different. There's over 260 different languages spoken all over India, just in the subcontinent itself. And so there are a lot of variations. So when we take namaste particularly, in general, it is pronounced with emphasis on the second syllable. So like n, n u h, m, m u h, and then ste, s t h e, but short, like so na, na, ma, ste. And so the first way you were saying it, actually is is more similar to what I've heard all over India. So I've lived in the north and the south and um, the central parts of India. In most places, they'll say namaste. They also say it as a greeting. And it's typically used when some, you know, a younger person greets an elder, an uncle or an auntie, we, we call them, or an esteemed teacher or an elder in that way, you know, like a, a wise elder. And so we would say namaste ji, you know, namaste shankar ji. It was how I would greet my yoga teacher every single day when I saw him. And often we put the hands together. So for folks who can't see, you know, you might be familiar with namaskaram, which is it's the asana where the physical or the mudra actually, where you bring your hands together, the symbol of this honoring greeting where you bring your left and right hand together at the heart and then often there's a bow that happens. So it's used as a greeting and often paired with that with that gesture. And I want to break it down a little bit where it comes from. So it does date back, namaste, to old Sanskrit. It's found in the Vedas, in Vedic writings which are the ancient texts that a lot of the knowledge we have of these teachings comes from. And it is when, when you translate it or you kind of unpack the phrase, and, and this is I'm getting from the research of Madhav Deshpande, who's a professor of Sanskrit. I am not, as I mentioned, a scholar of Sanskrit. I'm a, a very devoted student. But namas comes from nama, which means reverence or adoration, or also salutation, like a greeting or bowing, te, short for tubyam. It's the dative case for the second person pronoun, to you. So namaste is reverence or salutations to you. There's no mention, there's nothing in namaste that says I. There's no I. In namaste. It's like a reverence to you completely focused on the, the other, because I believe in it is like the other is the self, right? But I think that's really important because we often hear these kind of 
mm, exotified translations of like the divine. The light in me honors the light in you. you. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't actually. And where does that come from then? Where did that, because somewhere along the way that has been so adopted as just yeah. this is what it is. First yeah. of all, this is how you must end your yoga practice. Yeah. Even as this, if you don't, it's disrespectful. Kind yeah. of like the, this has to be. And here's what it means. The light in me honors the light in you or I bow to the to the light in you. And then that's not actually the me- true meaning of the of the word. How how do things get so lost in translation? Do you think? You know, that's that's a great question. And I, I was looking into how that transition, how that change happened. And even from the early use of the term namaste in English can actually be found in presses, like in newspapers between Indians and and British. So in the Times of India in March of 1920, there was a letter by an Indian person that said, by the by, sir, and I'm just reading this because I researched it, is it too much to say that it's high time Indian members accosted each other with a dignified salam, which is a Muslim greeting, or a hearty namaste, exchange compliments with each other in Hindi, right? So there was writing in British and Indian kind of correspondence that started to use this term. It generally was used as a salutation. It was described as a salutation. But apparently, there's a report that at Gandhi's funeral, that one by one, world leaders passed by, many people passed by, and as they passed him, did some kind of namaskar, placing their hands together in prayer, bowing or um, touching the ground with their foreheads. And this is from the UN World in April of 1948. And so my sense of this, as I looked at the research is, again, the intention was good. Right. The intention was we're going to connect to this culture. We're going to we're going to relate on their terms and use their language. You know, there's something so beautiful. Like I remember being a child and all around my high school auditorium was I love you in like like 50 different languages, you know, and it was such a beautiful thing. I remember looking at that. And I so my sense is it came from there. But what happened was it got kind of twisted into like a thou shalt always do this in a way that's exotification, right? In a way that's taking something that's a greeting and and made it a forced closing and, and a habitual closing. And so my, my question for people, because I actually don't have a hard and fast rule for myself or for anyone else. And th- this is because I truly believe that my role as an educator is one of promoting vichara. And we've talked about this before. It's one of promoting critical thinking and because it's complex. So I, I have always seen used heard namaste as a greeting, but when I wrote about that, I had some people write to me from uh, Nepal and say, you know, beta child, like, Sister, you know, we we use namaste as a leave taking. We use it to say goodbye. So, hun, you're wrong. Essentially, they're like, you're wrong. It's It can be a goodbye. It can be a hello. And so the reason I bring that up is it's not actually about is this right or is this wrong. It's really about what's my intention as I am practicing and why am I doing it. And 
So what's my intention and how is it landing for who I'm teaching and how does it impact the culture from which this comes, right? So in the case of, of Namaste, a lot of Indians that I have, and I've talked to hundreds now, Indians, South Asians, they find it weird when people say, and awkward when people say Namaste at the end. They, you know, if they're listening to a yoga video online, they like jump up. They told me, I had a few people tell me this, they jump up out of Shavasana to stop the video before they get to that namaste because it makes them feel so awkward and strange. It feels exotifying. It feels like their culture is somehow being like glamorized into this thing like, oh, namaste, like we're being given a, a benediction, some holy spiritual thing. And they're like, it's just hello. It's not, you know, like end the class with some other way. Don't end it with that. And, and yet I've also heard from people that what they really mean when they're closing is that I bow to you, you know, or bow to you. And it is a new beginning. It is a new moment. And so I am greeting this new being who is in front of me in this present moment. And they truly mean that. Their students love it. And so it's like, just be intentional, right? And and kind of like he said, like you wanted to fit in. I've said, I used to say namaste at the end of my classes because that was what was done in the studios that I was at. And also, it was like the way to signify the ending of a class. And I realized, oh, this is now just becoming a, a way to like say goodbye and get out of here. And that, it also felt wrong. And so and now I've researched and I have many different ways of ending, but often we'll just say thank you for your practice or I'll say Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, the the Shanti mantra, and share that kind of feeling of peace that I want to, to impart to students at the end of a practice and hope they can take into their day. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. So I stopped saying namaste at the end of, of, of class when I teach. And instead, I say thank you, thank you, thank you. Just a, a big moment of, of gratitude. And I've had some interesting response just making this shift. Some people in outright shock. And, and, and I've even had people in class sort of yell out namaste really loud <laughs> at the end as to like, you forgot to close practice, you know. What are some some recommendations from you, first of all, in terms of how we can, what we can substitute? What's another great way to close? And if we want to approach this conversation with our teachers and studios in our local areas, mm-hmm. how do we go about that? 
Yes, I love this question because it's the invitation into creativity. And so often the alternative to cultural appropriation is creativity. And I wrote a blog about this. I think it's actually called like 60 plus alternatives to saying namaste. So there's, I I think it's honestly got like 80 different alternatives on there. But what I do is I just say to my classes or I say in in the studio, you know, I've, I've learned that namaste is a greeting. And so I might say it to begin class. But to close class, I'll offer, you know, a poem or a prayer or a short phrase. And I just let them know at the beginning and and have a conversation with the community or with the studio. Now, I have heard of people getting pushback on that in the studios or places that they teach. But, you know, I think, again, like approaching people on the same side with curiosity, not with righteousness. So I don't go in there like, oh, this is the right way to do it. That way is the wrong way. I just say, hey, you know, I've been exploring this. What do you think about this with with a studio or with a community? Or let's try, I want to try something different. What are your thoughts about that? So we're kind of on the same side rather than combating or like digging in and, and being righteous. And then with students, often they're really interested to learn. They're like, oh, I had no idea. And my suggestion for for teachers who are thinking about different ways to end is take that moment to align with and, and question, like just pausing and feeling, okay, imagine yourself right now closing a yoga asana class, closing a class. How do you want those students to feel? What do you want to impart to them. And in that pause, something may arise. You may want to send them off with a little more compassion or a little more freedom or ease or some inspiration. And then you can either just say what comes directly from you, you know, move from your soul. You could, if it's like inspiration, maybe you search for a poem that's really inspiring and you read that to close. Or I know some teachers who come up with their own like kind of short phrase or saying like, be grateful for the things that you have and be grateful for the things you do not have. May this practice, you know, be fulfilling and may you feel peace through your day. And thank you. I'm just closing with thank you, right? So you can come up with any kind of of closing. You can do the same closing. You can vary it. There's so many options. I actually think it's a a delightful path of inquiry. And I do, you know, my main teacher, Shankarji, and and a number of other yoga teachers in India do often end with OM, the sound, the sacred sound of the, the universe, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And so I often end with Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, and I explain what Om is and what Shanti is at the beginning of class, so it's not a shock or a surprise. I always try to explain Sanskrit if I use it, so people aren't taken aback or, or surprised. But that's one way I love to end. And so I'm curious, actually, to hear about people can respond to the blog and put their their alternatives to Namaste there, and we can get a whole like hundreds and and maybe even thousands of alternatives to to Namaste. And that's a great point that the response or the antidote to cultural appropriation oftentimes is creativity. 
you know, what is my intention with this? What is that I'm looking to embody or connect with? And how can I get creative and, and do that in a really respectful and, and, and beautiful way? And that's so, I found at the beginning of class, if I make a little mention of it, you know, here at the studio or in my classes, to close here is what we say. Or mm. And I, I didn't think I would have to do that, but it's a very, I think, sensitive subject for a lot of people, that that mm. ending. So it's definitely a personal, personal journey, but it's, it's worth the conversation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love that. I mean, that the approach that it really is about integrity and that it can be a really individual thing that the rule book for everything isn't out there for everyone to find. Although some things I know you do have on your website, a checklist of certain big components and, and, and things to look into in terms of cultural appropriation. But for me with Namaste, what, what happened was really the moment, the first time I saw a comment written on social media, you know, from someone saying, I am, I am Indian. And it always mm. strikes me so strange mm. to see white folks or non non-indian people use this word at the end of class because to me it doesn't relate and i went what i thought i was so sure that this was a holy sacred thing that i'm somehow more connected to culture by saying there's an ending class this way and then doing the research and it didn't take that much research to be honest which usually should involve, I think, talking to people who actually stem from that tradition. Like that's the easiest way is to not do what I had done in the past, which was ask all my white teachers about what mm. does this mean, but to go to someone who actually has the roots in that tradition. How does that feel? Oh, that feels very strange for me. Okay. So maybe I have approached this in a way that isn't actually honoring that truth. And some people might feel, no, I have had teachers who, who, who've learned from this lineage and I feel tons of integrity and this is very, you know, and then, then that's their journey. For me, it was opposite. It was the moment my eyes were open to, this is a little weird. My mm. whole being went, yeah, it feels a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> it always felt, always felt a little weird and it felt weird in a way that's different than using the Sanskrit names for, for poses, which is like, yeah. here's this pose. And we want to pass on the name, the origin, the history, the language of this posture as it's taught versus I'm closing a class saying hello or <laughs> saying something that doesn't, that isn't what I thought it was, I guess. Yeah. So. I think that's so helpful to, to bring up like how it feels because I think we can do, and for folks listening, it's like when you do that gut check of like, how does this feel? How does this really feel in my body? Do I feel weird? Does it feel awkward? Or does it feel right? And and when there's an awkward or a, hmm, I'm not sure, is getting curious. Because there are terms, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a student and a scholar of cultural issues in yoga. And so there are terms for why we might feel awkward, like the glamorization, um, which is a form of cultural appropriation. Glamorization is a practice uh, of cultural appropriation that takes something out of cultural context and then uses them for the purpose of looking good or cool, but without regard for the original intention of that culture. And then on the flip side, there's sterilization, which is a form of cultural appropriation that occurs when one sanitizes a culture or practice and removes the cultural elements to make yoga or whatever it is that one is taking more palatable to the dominant culture. And so we're kind of like walking this, this, uh, this beautiful line between 
removing the cultural elements in a way that that is disrespectful or putting them on in a really kind of almost pretentious way. And neither of those actually feels good in the body. Neither of those feels in integrity or in alignment. And so that's why we can come back into ourselves and check, well, how does this feel? Am I exotifying, glamorizing? Oh, okay, maybe I don't need to do that. Or am I sterilizing? Hmm, maybe, you know, going in and thinking that I like this community won't relate or won't understand Sanskrit poses or Sanskrit names or yoga philosophy. Maybe I've taken too much out and I can bring in a little bit more of the yoga philosophy, the deeper elements, the more rich, broad elements of yoga, slowly, slowly, slowly in my practice and into my community. And so it is this growth path. And and to me, it's an exciting growth path. I hope it is for people listening as well, because really it's all an invitation to go deeper into our practice and then share more fully from that place. Whether, you know, and when I say share, I'm not just talking about as teachers. I really mean, you know, even as practitioners of yoga, most of the yoga I share is just through, through how I'm being in the world, not through formal teaching. And I think that that beautifully also answers the question around mudras and mantra and or do you have do you have I know we're running out of time again all of our all of our conversations should be two hours minimum <laughs> but that was another big question from people around chanting at any point during class how 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 do you feel about that in this context yeah well you know often with a mudra or a mantra, I develop a deep, deep, deep relationship to it in my personal practice before I share it in community. And, and I think there's a big difference between developing a personal relationship to something and then going out and like teaching it. And, and so that's the first place I'd start is like, what's your relationship? How long have you worked with it? Traditionally, you know, like my main teacher had practiced with a mantra for a decade before he taught it to any of his students. And that was so when he taught it, it was infused with the energy, the full energy of, of the intention of that mantra. And so there's a, there's an invitation to depth, right? In all of this. And I really love mantra and mudra. They're way, they're some of the main ways I've been able to deepen. I use mudra and mantra for, for anxiety or for stress. And those, those practices have really helped me be able to be more fully myself in the world. And again, just because it's helped me doesn't mean it's mine to then go and, and teach and share and like, spread everywhere, right? So so it's taking that pause to be like, what's my relationship with it? And, and generally, I would say is point people in the direction of a South Asian teacher, mantra teacher, especially kirtan, where it's a devotional practice, a devotional tradition, someone with a lineage who is able to share and teach from that you know, place of, of power and integrity. And if you've developed that within yourself, then, you know, I think you'll know. <laughs> so there's that, that coming back always to, to inner alignment. Yeah. That, that feeling, am I, am I copying something I have seen other teachers or other people do, which is a challenging thing. I think as a, 
as a new teacher in any area is, is okay, here is what other people did. So let me replicate that. And usually I think a big part of, of teaching yoga is arriving at that place deep inside of ourselves where we are teaching from a very authentic place. And then doing this, this sort of work, which I mean, and, and I've spoken about this on the podcast many times before, but how daunting and terrifying it was for me to approach the conversation around culture and tradition. And the mm. reason it was, was that I, I, I didn't have the experience in that area that I should have had, or that I f- feel mm. now really was, was something that I completely missed out on. But I knew that. So mm-hmm. I was defensive about it. So it was triggering for me. And it's kind of, you know, just what this practice teaches is to how can I take the breath, create a little more space, sit with the discomfort of all those areas that actually trigger. Mm-hmm. So for everyone listening, I think whether it's that one specific thing that you just, oh, I hate that conversation or that's just not true or we all have something that's, that's, that's triggering and sensitive and chances are that it's a huge chance for, for a deepening, for an awakening, for a closer, more personal relationship to the practice. And in the end, everybody benefits, right? It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, loss, it's, it's, it's gain. It really is. And I think what you've done, and I see so many people doing now that so, powerful is building relationships with others. And that's the beauty too, right? And the potential of yoga as unity is building relationships with people across difference, across different cultural experiences. And with the power of of online, you know, now we can do that and have friends who we've never met physically in person, but friends all over the world or teachers all over the world. And, And so really taking the time to build those deep relationships with people who might be outside of. So for folks listening, like if you survey who you follow on social media or who you've learned from and be like, oh, wow, there's not a lot of these different types of people. Let me go and learn from some new communities. Let me go check this out and take a different a different approach or a different experience, not in a tokenizing way, you know, in a way where you're like, you know, like like putting someone on the spot, but really from that sincere intention to to connect. And I know that that when it comes to me in that way, it's always so well received, and I gain from that as well as as other people gaining. And so so taking the time to learn and uplift other teachers, and in particular, I would say with yoga, South Asian teachers, Daisy teachers, people from whom the practice has come because they're out there. There's so many out there and there's so many wonderful teachers to learn and to collaborate with and to, to explore. And for everyone who really wants to dive deeper into this, you have a book out. I do. How wild is that? Embrace yoga's roots. How do you feel about having this, this baby of yours out in the world? It's, yeah, it's so, so thrilling because it's been a project that's been really a lifetime, but years in, in forming and it's like a heart song. It's, it's a embodiment of all of what we've shared, like looking at the causes of separation, reflecting on our parts, moving into action, and then like 
coming creatively to form solutions for liberation and, and for mutual uplift. So it's a workbook. I've heard from people who've read it that they feel like like the it's digestible. It's not too much. Like the questions, there's questions throughout it that ask people to reflect. They're reflecting. And so I think it's going to have a my hope, my wish is that it ripples out into the yoga world in the West in particular and invites us into this like process of deepening with yoga itself. And um, so I'm really excited and, and curious. I'm excited too. I just know, and I know you're self-publishing this book, which is a, a big undertaking. So especially for everyone listening, this is a, a wonderful step to take today to be of service in terms of learning more and honoring the roots of this practice that has changed all of our lives and hopefully will continue to change the world for the good is to go to susanabarkataki.com and get the book today. I can't wait to receive it and read it and just continue to, to learn from you. Thank you so much for this work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and a huge thank you to Susanna Barkataki for joining me today. You can find Susanna on Instagram at Susanna Barkataki or at susannabarkataki.com. Her book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, is coming out on Monday, so be sure to grab that from embraceyogasrootsbook.com. Also on Monday, don't miss our bonus podcast episode where we continue this important conversation. If you enjoy the show, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of them on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week.